Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have dealt with death throughout history. From embalming and epitaphs to mourning and morgues, we are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are talking about the Anwick Poison Garden. Now let's get on to the show. What do Socrates, Curry, and 17th century France have in common? I, ju- I can't think of a, a quippy, clever answer for that. So I'm just going to say whatever you said the episode is about. <laughs> uh, poison, yeah. About poison. Uh, and specifically, Curry. we're going to be talking about a garden that is dedicated to the cultivation and education around poison. So there are a couple of poison gardens around the world, but this one is considered to be kind of the main one, the most popular one, uh, the deadliest one. Okay. And so... Curry? (laughs) Curry, yeah. So the connection there is that there was a murder done by a jealous ex-lover who spiked who broke into her ex's place and spiked his curry with aconite and killed him with it okay good uh, vehicle for your poison i guess it is and as we'll talk about a lot of plant-based poisons are extremely fast acting and unpleasant though a lot of them have medicinal properties but we'll get into that miss me with them poisonous plants i'm only growing tea plants <laughs> being tea Tizane, I guess, is the technical term. I'm growing, like, spearmint and lemon balm and shit. Stuff that won't poison me. Hopefully not. You may be surprised what plants are poisonous and yet are everywhere. Um, so to start off, we got to talk a little bit about the town and the grounds and how the Anwick Poison Garden came to be. So Anwick is a very small town in the Northumberland County of England. So it's only about 51 kilometers away from the Scottish border. It's quite a ways up there. It's a fairly small town. The census done in 2011 noted that it was only about 8,500 people living in the town. Okay. So very small. Town's been around since 600 AD. It's primarily agricultural. And it is also the home to Anwick Castle. The castle's been around since the 11th century and is the residence of the earls of Northumberland, including the House of Percy, which was the most powerful earldom family in Northern England during the Middle Ages. It is the second largest inhabited castle in the country, the biggest being Windsor, of course, which is where the queen lives. Okay. Give me a really speedy overview of this area. I knew none of this. Just blasting through it. Like, we started it very, very early. We were in the Middle Ages. What's next? Yeah, so it was first constructed in the 11th century. As I said, it's had plenty of renos and updates. It is also familiar to, I think, most people because it has been used as a movie set in the first two Harry Potter films for interior and exterior shots. 
It has also been used for Downton Abbey. So it's been in some very popular shows. There's plenty of other ones that I don't recognize, but others probably do. Yeah, I'd say Harry Potter and Downton Abbey are probably the most recognizable. So the castle itself is open to visitors during the summer, even though the current Duke and Duchess of Northumberland do currently live there with their four children in a part of the castle that is not available for visitors. Obviously, it'd be weird if all summer there were just strangers paying to visit your living room. Uh, And I don't know, you're trying to watch Wimbledon. I mean, I feel like some people would be into that. Yeah, so it is currently open to visitors during the summer, save the living quarters of the current Duke and his family. There are three perimeter towers as well that are home to exhibitions, including artifacts from Pompeii and ancient Egypt, history of the family, as well as some local military history. The garden itself, because all of these castles have large gardens usually attached to them, The first iterations of the garden were started in 1750 by the first duke, whose name was Hugh Percy, of the House of Percy. It was built with the help of famous landscaper Lancelot Capability Brown. It was known as Capability Brown. What a wild thing to be nicknamed. I was going to say, is that a a real name or a nickname? But you just answered that question. Capability uh, must be a very capable person. I would hope so, but also if that's the one quality worthy of a nickname, makes you wonder. <laughs> yeah, that, so that's a very um, tepid kind of compliment. You're capable. Yeah, good old capability brown. So it was started in 1750 by the time the third Duke of Northumberland came around, who was also named Hugh Percy. It, uh, it really kicked off with development as the third Duke of Northumberland was an avid plant collector and brought in seeds from all over the world, was raising pineapples in hothouses in northern England at the time. That's wild. Yeah, he set off like a year of development for the gardens. The fourth Duke that came in added an Italian-style garden with a large conservatory with yew trees, topiaries, and just acres of flowers. It's considered to have been kind of the height of the original garden's grandiosity. It was overturned during the Second World War, during the British campaign Dig for Victory. Uh, It was turned over to produce food for the local population before being closed as a working garden in 1950. Fell into disrepair in the meantime. Along the way, the then-Duke died, and so his brother and sister-in-law took over, and these are the current Duke and Duchess of Northumberland living in the castle. The Duchess of Northumberland, Jane Percy, essentially went, all right, I now have a castle and massive gardens. I'm going to redevelop the gardens. So she began in 1997. It took her two years fighting the English heritage, which kind of insisted that if she was going to restore the gardens, she had to restore it to its 18th and 19th century kind of setup. Mm, I wonder why that is. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. I think it's just part of preserving, like heritage sites because of the nature of Anwick Castle and its grounds. She fought back. It cost her like half a million pounds in legal fees to finally get the right to do what she was going to do with it, which was to make a modern counterpoint to Capability Brown's garden. So I'm, I'm just, my, my mind is just swimming with like, 
the peak of British imperialism and yeah. the, the <laughs> grandiosity of that time period. Um, I assume, I'm assuming that, I don't know for sure. Uh, don't take me at my word, listeners, that uh, just from context seems yeah. like the reason why they would fixate on that time period as a heritage restoration, despite the fact that it has a much longer history than that. Um, and yeah. for places that are very, very old, I find it much more interesting to learn about all the different time periods. Like, how many things has it been over the years? That's that's really intriguing to me. So I hope she yeah. won her legal case. She did, yeah. There was some outcry as well about the money it would cost to do the redevelopment. So there was a certain amount of money that was coming from a charitable fund separate from uh, their like Duke and Duchess money to go into it. And then some government funding and a lot of private fundraising and private donors. Phase one of redevelopment is said to have cost about 42 million pounds. And there was some criticism from, I know it's it's a fuck ton of money, but there was some criticism from people that was I don't think unreasonable that there was a lot of other public parks and public gardens that were falling into disrepair for lack of funds, that it would go better to those failing parks than doing this massive project. I mean, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. I'm biased in this kind of <laughs> discussion. Places yeah. that already exist that need, uh, need support. Yeah. The other thing, too, is that in the early 2000s, when this was really getting off the ground, Anwick, the town in which this is situated, was facing the highest unemployment rates in its history. And, like, gardeners, landscapers, all these sorts of people were losing jobs, losing work. And with the opening of the gardens, it created this huge boom economically for the whole region. So the district, it's estimated that with the gardens it generated up to 53 million pounds for the district in tourism and jobs that like the wives in the town were doing baking for the cafes and stuff in the gardens Hmm. and all the like landscapers and gardeners and agricultural folks who had been laid off from other places suddenly there was this massive garden that needed maintaining so I love that yeah I love that uh, money is invested and it brings back more yeah your return on investment is is a positive i love that there's a lot of places like that that you don't expect yeah so bit of a surprise there i think there is definitely some credibility to the criticism about the allocation of government funds but i think that's more on the government than necessarily on the duchess for her project because a lot of that money came from private donations so the first phase of redevelopment, it opened in October of 2001, involved the creation of a giant water feature through the middle of the garden, it's called the Cascade, um, and the initial planting for the whole place. 2004, a 6,000 square foot treehouse complex, complex with a cafe in it was opened. There was a visitor center and a pavilion opened in 2006 with this crazy like barrel vaulted grid shell roof. And the final phase that has not yet been funded or completed would include things like an ice rink, a lighting program, and an obstacle course that is designed specifically to be accessible for children and those with disabilities. The thing we are primarily interested in today is a feature that was added in February of 2005, which of course is the Poison Garden. So the entrance to this small section of the Anwick Gardens is barred with large black wrought iron gates with signs on the door that feature a skull and crossbones, 
and the four words, these plants can kill. There are about a hundred deadly plants inside this garden. Every single one of them is capable of killing an adult human by itself. Like, I, I'm sure there's some variety here, but are we talking ingestion or just by touching it? All of them. Ingestion, inhalation, touch. Uh, there's at least one plant in the garden that regularly, if people get too close to it, they pass out because of the like the fumes coming off of what it. What the fuck? <laughs> Any park or garden guests that are going in there are given a safety briefing before that they are allowed in. They are only allowed in on guided tours and they are strongly discouraged from smelling, touching, God forbid, tasting, or getting too close to anything in this garden. I mean, humans feel like they're infallible, so it wouldn't surprise me. It's definitely would be a liability thing uh, as to why they can only go on guided tours. Yeah, and they do have medics inside the garden at all times just to be safe. Because part of the risk is that some of the plants in here are literally garden variety poisons. So some of the plants that are inside the garden is the Strychnosnox vomica, which is the source of strychnine, the hemlock uh, ricin communis, which is the source of both harmless castor oil and the deadliest poison on the face of the planet, ricin, foxglove, atropa belladonna, among others. I'm familiar with foxglove. Um, There's a lot of them on site where I work. And my understanding is that one is used in heart medication. It is. Yes. Yes. The actual genus that foxglove is part of is called digitalis. Mm. Isn't that the name of the heart medication? (laughs) It is. So in low doses, it works for a heart medication. Digitoxin, the part of it that is actively toxic, if you ingest it in particular, will basically destroy your heart rhythm the same way that if you, without a heart issue, took just a bunch of digitalis would be very bad. <laughs> so people with heart problems do not approach a foxglove and try to home remedy? <laughs> yes, Don't do not do self-medicate with a extremely poisonous plant. Please and thank you. Yeah, and Atropa belladonna is also known as deadly nightshade. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of fun plants in here. Among the plants grown in the poison garden are also cannabis, coca, and the opium poppy as Cocaine. part of... Um, drug education that is offered at the poison garden. Cannabis and the opium poppy, obviously the source of marijuana and opium. Coca is the source of cocaine and heroin. So And originally was an ingredient in Coca-Cola. Indeed it was. And so these plants are extremely highly regulated. The gardeners that work in the poison garden do actually have to have particular licenses from the home office of the British government in order to work with these plants and they have to take extremely meticulous uh, records of how many seeds are planted, how many germinate the, you know, how the plants are kept, how many die and evidence of destruction, the whole shebang, right? Because you don't want just this big old garden just growing drugs. but it's an important source of drug education, particularly for young folks coming in in a way that they don't necessarily realize is harm prevention-based drug education. That's really cool. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. 
And so, of course, the Poison Garden was not part of the 20th century iterations of the garden. It was a project specifically of Jane Percy, the Duchess herself, who was kind of looking for a really unique feature for the Anwick Gardens to draw people in, to be like, ooh, that's new, and to kind of shrug off the hyper-regulation of public spaces. She originally planned to have an apothecary garden set up, but after visiting a poison garden in Medici, Italy, and visiting an archaeological site in Scotland of the largest the largest medieval hospital that they had, um, and learning about how doctors would use sponges soaked in henbane, opium, and hemlock to anesthetize patients before an amputation in the 15th century, she basically went, well, that seals it. That's way fucking cooler. We're doing a poison garden. Yeah, I mean, how can you... How can you bypass that opportunity? That's really pretty cool. Uh, it is. I was like, why Why a poison garden? <laughs> why? Exactly. And I found a quote from her in an article for the Smithsonian Magazine where she says, People don't care that aspirin comes from a bark of a tree. What's interesting is to know how a plant kills you and how the patient dies and what you feel like before you die. Which I think kind of hits the nail on the head. We are all fascinated with death because of its inevitability. I mean, we're doing this podcast. You, dear listener, are listening to this podcast. Clearly, we have some interest in death and how it happens, right? When someone dies, we're like, oh, but how did they die? We all secretly want to know. Dare we call it a morbid curiosity? Oh, ho, ho. Uh, yeah, and so now the Poison Garden is one of the main points of attraction for the Anwick Gardens, despite the fact that they are a massive garden. And this is just one very small part. It's very cool. Yeah, and the gardeners who work in here quite often have to go in in full hazmat suits, full rubber gloves, and face masks. Not like the type we've been wearing during the pandemic, but almost like welding masks. Like you see on a ventilated hazmat suit in order to protect themselves. Uh, and to protect themselves from what, you may ask? From some of these plants. So we're going to talk for a second about what's actually growing in this garden. Lay it um, on me. I'm, I'm all excited yeah. about my little container garden. Tell me all about the plants. <laughs> so one of the first ones that comes up that people are surprised about is cherry laurel or laurel. It's a type of hedge plant with like glossy green leaves. It's extremely common in the UK as just a hedge plant. It has a very wicked defense mechanism. So gardeners that would trim their hedges and then chuck the boughs and stuff in say the boot of their car, the trunk, in order to take it to the dump or to a compost site, quite often would end up in accidents because they'd be in the car with these cuttings with the windows rolled up. And what cherry laurel does when it is uh, compressed, masticated, cut, or anything like that, is it produ produces cyanide gas. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this was actually very popular among Victorian era butterfly collectors. Because what you would do is you would trap your butterfly in a jar and you would take a small cutting of a cherry laurel and drop it in there with it. Close the lid and the cyanide gas would suffocate the butterfly. So you'd have this injury-free butterfly, perfect for mouth. So, Sorry, I'm uh, just it, looking it up because I was like, yeah. Victorian era gardens, like? what if we have these at work? <laughs> I There's a good chance that you do. It is native to the UK, but a lot of these plants have been naturalized 
into the quote unquote new world. Uh, I'll keep an eye Canada, out for America. Them. I know we have so. regular laurels uh, like everywhere as hedges, um, but I'll yeah. keep my eye out for the cherry laurel. Be like, gardeners, please yeah. don't put this in enclosed spaces. Yeah, because it's one thing if you're cutting it in a, you know, out in the open and there's a bit of a breeze, it'll carry away the cyanide gas and you're maybe okay. But yeah, if you get into a car that's had these things in there, uh, you may be in trouble because you'll pass out. Yeah, other plants that are in there, of course, ricin, the castor bean. Guinness Book of World Records recognizes ricin as the most deadly substance known to date. Uh, it can be found in uncooked castor beans and in the byproducts from making castor oil. It can be inhaled, ingested, or absorbed through skin or eye contact. And essentially what it does is it gets into your cells and it stops them from producing proteins causing cell death. It can take anywhere from 36 to 72 hours to cause death depending on how you came into contact with it. Um, they are looking into potential uses of ricin for treating cancer as cancer is your cells reproducing wildly out of control due to mutations. So something that causes cell death might be good for that. Uh, ricin has also been used in a lot of uh, assassinations, both botched and achieved. When you hear about letters being sent with the intention of that letter being a murder weapon, usually what they're talking about is that letter containing dried ricin because so little of it is required to be fatal. Is it like uh, an inhalation thing? Yeah, yeah. If you inhale it, uh, ingest it, or absorb it through your skin. So it's very easy to, to fuck you up. One of the things that authorities will use to diagnose like a ricin poisoning is that if it affects everybody within a certain area of the primary victim, because inhalation is such a problem and it becomes a very like f a very fine white powder. So there's been multiple cases of assassination by letter being attempted even as recently as 2020 when someone sent a ricin laced uh, letter to President Donald Trump. It was a Canadian woman who tried to do it. Of course it got caught because they are looking for these things nowadays. Um, I don't remember that actually. Must have, that one must have slipped by my uh, news web. <laughs> Given the torrent of hot garbage most of 2020 is, I Not think surprising. one assassination attempt can slide through. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Uh, another one that they grow in the garden is giants, or giant hogweed. It's also called giant cow's parsnip, cow's parsley, or hogsbane. I've heard this of is that one. Yeah, it's an 8 to 12 foot tall plant, and it's got these like delicate umbrellas of tiny white flowers on the top. They are super poisonous, and primarily from touch. So they are what's called phototoxic, or phytotoxic. If you get the sap on your hands, it'll cause third degree burns that will continue to blister for up to seven years. Jesus Christ. I remember going camping uh, and there were areas that they were like, do not go into the brush in these areas. There is giant hogweed. Don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's brutal. If you get the sap in your eyes, it will blind you. As it does basically the same thing, but to one's delicate eyeballs. 
Uh, it has become an invasive species in a lot of North America. Ontario has a problem with it. A lot of the Northeast and um, like Mideast of the United States is also dealing with invasive hogweed. It's uh, it, The seeds for Giant's hogweed can remain viable in soil for up to 15 years before sprouting. So uh, it really wants to survive, hey? It really wants to survive. And this is the thing about poisonous plants, is that generally they're only toxic to us when we intervene with them or interact with them in some way, because plants do have protective measures, right? It may not be fangs and claws, but boy, cyanide gas will do it. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's its defense. That's what a laurel is using as a defense. If something tries to forage it or chomp on it, then it's fucked. Yeah, don't cut me. Yeah. Uh, Another one in here is Angel's Trumpet. It has a couple of different names. Brugmansia is part of its, uh, like, scientific name. And it's actually a genus of seven different plants. But what's typical of it is it has this hanging, um, like, slender bell-shaped flower that's typically yellow. And it has... If you ingest the pollen, it gives you symptoms very similar to nightshade. And Victorian ladies used to give themselves LSD-like hallucinations by tipping just a couple of grains into their tea. They would keep it in their house in order to get high as shit. I've also seen notes that it is a deadly aphrodisiac. What was that one called? Angel's Trumpet. Okay, I've never heard yeah. of that they one They tend before. to be quite typical in, like, country gardens all the way across the UK. I don't know how super common they are here in Canada. They're a cute little flower, by all means. But every part of the plant is poisonous. <laughs> uh, it's worth noting that, ev- yeah, every plant is capable of killing a whole ass human. And one of the criteria for it being in the garden is that it has, like, a fun... St- like an interesting story attached to it. Because uh, there are definitely more than a hundred plants full capable of killing an adult human. But they had to curate the garden in some fashion. Yeah, exactly. Foxglove, of course, we did talk about it. One of the symptoms of the digitoxin is that your vision goes blurry and kind of yellow. And there are some people that theorize that Vincent van Gogh was actually suffering from digitoxin poisoning in a medication meant to stop his seizures during his yellow period. Ah, interesting. It's entirely possible that he was just really vibing with yellow, though. So. I mean, yellow is a great color. It's a great color. Um, But yeah, foxgloves, they come in a bunch of different colors. They're beautiful. Every single part of the plant is poisonous. So definitely be careful if you have these in your garden when you are cutting them to be wearing gloves and do not use your teeth to remove your gloves. (laughs) Very important. That's interesting. Okay, so not only do I have um, foxglove at work, they're somewhat uh, wild around here. Like they'll be just out and about in the wild. And there's also some um, just in the rock wall next to like my, my door, my front door, basically. Um, I didn't cut one today, but Mm. it had flopped over because they grow quite tall and they, if you're trying to grow them purposefully in your garden to be a part of your garden, you pretty much, you have to stake them if they get too tall. Otherwise they'll flop over. But I just like picked it up and kind of tucked it back into the rocks because it was in the walking path. But, uh, I'll keep in mind to not do that. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, like, I'm glad you didn't just, like, go inside and then have some, like, tasty handheld tacos without washing your hands. I don't think so. I think I'm good. Yeah. Yeah, because people do have them in their gardens. We all have uh, deadly plants around us pretty much all the time. Um, I know I definitely had a lot of Russians with uh, poison ivy and other types of poisonous trees in the back field out behind my house when I was a kid. Quite often come back with like rashes and hives and blisters and sh from tromping around in unidentified spiky plants. Uh, and like creeping cactuses that have nerve toxins in them just through the underbrush of the mountainside because I insisted on climbing mountains straight up. Paths be damned. Uh, don't recommend take paths when you're climbing mountains if it's a hike. <laughs> oh. Poisonous plants all around. Uh, yeah, so the next one, belladonna. Atropa belladonna, also known as deadly nightshade. So these actually produce a berry. It's like a small blueberry-sized blackberry, and they are reported to be quite sweet, which is a problem because children will often mistake them for blueberries or for other edible plants, and it only takes three or four of them to kill a child. Oh, no. It's, yeah, it's native to the UK and parts of Europe, and it's naturalized all the way across Canada and the United States. It is one of the most toxic plants known to human beings. Uh, honey made by bees that are surrounded mostly by belladonna is poisonous. Uh, <laughs> so don't just go busting into any beehive you find. Exactly. And that's a huge thing, too, is people getting sick from various honeys from bees that have been in areas with just a fuck ton of poisonous plants. Uh, there's a couple on this list that are like that. Also, during the Italian Renaissance in Venice, ladies of the court would often uh, essentially crush all the berries to get all the juices out of it, and they would use an eyedropper to put drops in their eyes in order to dilate their pores and get flushed cheeks, which was part of the beauty standards of the time. Uh, it did eventually lead to blindness and or death. But just casually putting some some water of, of nightshade some poison straight in your into eyes. your eyeballs. Yeah, Sounds like a good time. Straight into your eyeballs. Yeah. Um, I've got two more on this list here and then a couple that surprised even me for being full poisonous. <laughs> so the next one is monkshood or wolfsbane. So this is a very pretty purple flower. It's another fairly tall plant. Uh, it contains aconite, which is a nerve and heart poison. And again, every part of this plant is poisonous. The roots are the most poisonous. And we've known this for a very long time, as it was a very popular method of execution in ancient Rome. Soldiers and hunters were also known to coat the tips of their spears and their arrows in hunting and battle. Also, it was a plot point in a Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries episode. Uh, yeah, Monkshood, Wolfsbane, pretty common flowers. You quite often see them in gardens. Uh, yeah, full poisonous. Be very careful when cutting them or dealing with them in any way. And the last one that I wanted to talk about is hemlock. So this is a hardy fucking plant. It's fairly dark in color. It has a hollow reed. It grows basically everywhere. It's very hardy as plants go. It's poisonous to all mammals and other species, and it can get you through inhalation, ingestion, or contact, as most can. And it was also very popular as an execution method for condemned prisoners in ancient Greece, the most famous of which 
is Socrates. I do know that. That is yes. one of the things I have heard about ancient Greece. Yeah. Yeah, so Socrates, who is one of the fathers of Western philosophy, was uh, condemned for impiety and corrupting the youth in 366 BC. And he was forced to commute, commit suicide by ingesting a potent infusion of hemlock. Hemlock is one that gets into your lungs and basically stops you from being able to breathe or take oxygen into your body. So it's a it's a pretty gnarly one. And it's also kind of everywhere. Is this kind of like drowning without the liquid? Yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah, common symptoms kind of across all of these is things like uh, rashes, heart arrhythmias, hallucinations, delirium, diarrhea, constipation, confusion... And of course, death. It's a uh, it's wild. Quite a few of them are part of the same genus as either as uh, the nightshade or as the angels' trumpets. A couple of the plants that I was not expecting to see on this list, but that I have definitely seen out in the wild, include daffodils. What? <laughs> yep. Primarily poisonous if they're ingested, which is not usually a problem for adults, but it can be for children and animals. All parts of the plant are poisonous, and there's actually uh, like a daffodil cutter's rash that you get from the phytotoxic sap if you cut it with your bare hands. Okay, that stay away from the happy daffodils. Right, which is wild, because they're everywhere, they're adorable. I was gifted some daffodils on my birthday when I was living in England because they were like a national flower. They really did not stay alive in my apartment, I got no sun, but... Adorable flowers. I love them. Mm. Rhododendron. Really? Yes. So rhododendron, again, you can, if you ingest it, real bad. It also poisons the soil around it in order to kill other plants to take that land, which is wild. There are so many rhododendrons here. It's an extremely common flower in BC. Yeah, it's, it also, if you eat honey, that has been mostly put together by bees, you know, enjoying some rhododendrons, maybe some azaleas, it will make you hallucinate and then die. And it's also extremely toxic to horses who will die within hours of eating it. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, (laughs) that's good to know. Looking at all the gardens outside being like, I'm in danger. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I don't think the honey that I buy comes... It would be nice to get local honey, but the honey that I buy is not local honey. I wonder if people who make honey know these things. They must. They must. And a lot of these um, particular things will change the color of the honey. I believe rhododendron, if it's in the honey, the honey will get a little bit of a red tinge. Okay. Yeah. Oleander. I think most people know that this is poisonous, but it will kind of like digitalis or foxglove ruins your heart rhythm and kills you that way. And then Chinese lanterns, which are the like kind of crepish, bright red hanging plants. They're quite cute, um, but they are in the same family as nightshade and have very similar effects to the belladonna. Unlike tomatoes, eggplants, and other vegetables that are also in the nightshade family, but are not all the way poisonous, <laughs> like both Chinese lanterns and belladonna are interesting yeah so there's a lot of plants in this garden that are full poisonous but a lot of them as well that are 
used in medicinal research, right? A lot of things, it's if it's in a controlled dose, very small doses, sometimes um, artificially mimicked in order to remove the risk of the, uh, the toxic side effects can be used in things like anesthetics, anti-asthmatic medications, narcotics, cancer treatments, leukemia treatments. All of these plants also have medicinal uses or options for learning how to do certain things from plants. Almost everything we do is based off of something we've observed in nature because humans are animals as part of an ecosystem in which things cause other things to happen. So it's wild. Yeah, so that's that's my list of plants for you. <laughs> I'm happy to report that none of the things I am growing to put in tea are on your list. <laughs> I was going to ask if you were growing any poisons, but I'm like, there's no way that she's knowingly growing, like, aconite or something, or, like, growing strychnine. Uh, I'm growing spearmint, I mentioned, um, a different time, type of mint. You go to a plant place, and the selection on types of mint is wild. Uh, I think it's really uh, is. mojito mint is what I picked up, which was actually an accident. I intended to pick up two spearmint plants, and I ended up with a different one, which, fine, whatever. Um, lemon balm. Ooh, yeah. Which I mentioned. Um, lavender. And then I'm growing some herbs as well, but those are the main ones for tea. Um, chamomile, sorry, and chamomile, which I just picked up the other day and I'm really excited about, because you basically just yeah. cut the little flowers off and then dry them and it's tea it's it's just it smells amazing and it makes me happy incredible yeah and i know that a lot of um like herbs and like the mints and stuff you can also use to infuse cheap alcohols to one make them palatable and two make them better yeah yeah that's something i've been i've had um lavender in my cabinet for a while and i use it for different things like i made lavender lemonade so you just steep the lavender flowers and then add it to lemonade the like concentrated lavender tea that basically that you just made add it into homemade lemonade really good yeah i'm really getting into the the joy of growing plants herbs whatever yourself yeah and seeing where not necessarily i don't want to call it your food but like your herbs where they're coming from uh, I bought a basil plant, used it in a salad yesterday, like p- basil leaves off the plant. It's just very satisfying. Um, yeah. And I do feel like we are very disconnected in our modern age from plants to the uses in our modern lives, like all of these plants that you're talking about and their medicinal uses. Um, sure, they're poisonous if used incorrectly, but we've done a lot, we humans, have done a lot of research and scientific process uh, of trying to figure out what they're useful for to learn those things and to use them to our benefit which is one of the strengths of humans is science yeah i love it absolutely and i think that that your point about being more direct with our food too is really important because i mean for me my both grandparents on both sides of my family had gardens that my brother and i were lucky enough to go out and get food from And I think that for a lot of kids, particularly growing up in urban environments or in poorer environments, never got the chance to like go out and just be like, I'm eating the dirt with my carrot because I literally just ripped it out of the ground. And like that direct line from thing I grew to thing I'm eating, because like you say, it's very satisfying, but also it's very connective 
to your environment. And it's also very important to know what food or what plants are, um, because there's definitely lots of cases where plants like these probably were discovered to be poisonous because they looked like safe plants. Yeah. Yeah. And then someone died because of it. Yeah. 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 I will yeah. say it's a lot easier to just go out to the grocery store and buy a pack, a 20 pack of chamomile tea, but actually knowing that I grew it myself, I clipped the little heads, the flower heads off, I dried them, yeah. and then I made this cup of tea that came from a seed. Like, I didn't plant the seed, but I bought the plant. <laughs> And I'm taking yeah. care of the plant. That's so satisfying. And we've mentioned this before in like the pets and animals episodes that uh, that have happened that Christia primarily has done. Um, but in our discussions on those ones, like we are animals. Yeah. And we're not humans. Are animals, and we're not different. So different than them. Uh, but we're also part of nature, and we coexist with plants plants can kill us <laughs> plants can also be beneficial to us if we learn how to use them properly um yeah. such as with foxglove or digitalis and heart medication which i think is really cool yeah and it's because everything comes from somewhere right i think there's part of us that wants to be like oh tylenol can't come from like a plant or an animal but it does i mean a lot of things <laughs> like Fake vanilla came from beaver butt glands for a while. What? Yeah. Did you not know this? No. Yeah. It's because vanilla is a super intensive crop and there's a like very similar compound to vanillin in some of the, the butt glands of beavers. And so it was being used as like knock off vanilla for a long time. They've now figured out how to synthetically produce vanillin. But yeah, for a while there, we were all just having beaver butt juice. I was going to say, please tell me that that is no longer the case because I buy artificial vanilla. <laughs> right, but if you're ever wondering, like, what's the difference between artificial and, like, non-artificial vanilla, it's that one is synthetic vanillin that's been, like, chemically manufactured versus... A bean that's been steeped in, I think traditionally like whiskey. Oh, so like uh, like fake diamonds or zirconia that are actually chemically diamonds, but the yes. diamond industry says no, those aren't diamonds. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Okay, so. I will continue to buy the artificial vanilla then, until proven that it's bad for me, because <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> yeah. cheaper. Or until they go, no, actually, we were still using beaver butt juice. Oh. oh. <laughs> That would be awful. That would be awful. Both for the beavers and for people unknowingly having beaver butt gland. <laughs> <laughs> Produced <laughs> vanillin. <laughs> oh no. Fun facts. Here at Mortals. But yeah, so, I mean, dear listeners, I don't know how well you know the, the flora of your area, of what's growing wildly out there. It's a good idea to learn. A great resource is Alexis Nicole, also by the handle Black Forager on Instagram, who is a foraging expert and also just an absolute delight to partake in, who does educational stuff about foraging, what's poisonous, what's not, 
uh, and also talks about environmental racism, which is a very important topic, as well as you can find lots of apps that use your camera in order to identify plants. So if you're out and you're like, hmm, I wonder what this is. This looks like wolf spade. You can identify whether it is or is not 100% poisonous. But I, I would caution that don't always take the apps word for it. Don't yes. just go sticking it in your mouth if it tells you it's not. Yeah, uh, do not just eat flowers in the wild. If you go to a fancy restaurant and they give you edible flowers, those are probably fine. I don't think they were just out picking pansies from the like meridian on the side of the road. Those come from verified sources. Yeah, get to know the plants in your area. Uh, if you're planning a trip to the UK and you're heading up north to Scotland anyway, it might be worth stopping at the Anwick Castle and Gardens to check it out. Yeah, go visit your local gardens, learn about the plants that grow near you. Uh, I don't know, maybe check out a foraging book at the library and learn about plants, because plants are fascinating. Yeah, what's invasive? What's local? What's native? Figure yeah. it out. Plant What's native good? species. So I don't know about you, but Anwick is definitely on my travel itinerary next time I go to the UK. You say, next time? <laughs> I've never been. <laughs> One day, maybe. All right. Well, I think that does it for us today here at Mortals, talking about the Anwick Poison Garden, uh, a very cool place full of very deadly plants. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast, and on our website, mortalspodcast.com. Show your support, access bonus content, and help us keep ads out of your ears by joining our community at patreon.com slash mortalspodcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. <laughs>